0: I think Vermont has a sense that we're all in this together. We have to look out for each other. To my mind, a lot of it does have to do with with just the constitutional, the legal framework, and then how we as people take the responsibility the Constitution gives us. What do we do with it?
1: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Alan Gilbert had a front-row seat to some of Vermont's most historic social transformations, including legalizing same-sex marriage and making Vermont's education funding system the most equitable in the nation. Gilbert was a former journalist who served as executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Vermont for 12 years. He writes about being a participant and witness to this history in his new book, Equal is Equal, Fair is Fair, Vermont's Quest for Equity in Education Funding, Same-Sex Marriage, and Health Care. Alan Gilbert, welcome to the Vermont Conversation.
0: Glad to be here, David. Thanks for having me.
1: In your book, Equal is Equal, Fair is Fair, you write about historic issues like education fundering and and marriage equality, but uh, you make the point early on, these are really stories about people. Uh, Many of them were people who you know. Um, And one of the most striking uh, stories that you tell, because you talk both about the people and the issues, but it's about the Brigham case. And this is the landmark uh, decision, which brought about Act 60 and changed how we pay for education in this state. But the person Brigham was an eight year old girl named Amanda Brigham. So tell us about when you first met Amanda and, why, what was important about this case? Why this eight-year-old girl came to be the centerpiece of this huge struggle in Vermont?
0: Well, I met Amanda Brigham in the summer of 1995 when the Brigham case uh, had been filed and it was the first hearing. It was the first hearing was held in Lamoille County. One of the, one of the, the uh, I think there were a total of 32 plaintiffs in the case. One of the plaintiffs was from Lamoille County, so the, the case just ended up there, at least on the trial level. And Amanda and her mom, Carol, had dr- driven up from their home in Whiting, which is quite a distance from uh, Hyde Park, if, if you know where Whiting, Vermont is, uh, so that they- where,
1: where is Whiting, Vermont?
0: Well, Whiting is in, I believe it's uh, the tip of Addison County. It is uh, not too, It's it's below Middlebury, if I remember closely. On the western side of the state, and there's there's no easy way to get to, get to uh, Hyde Park. There's no fast way to get from from Whiting to Hyde Park, so it, it was quite a drive. And i I was trying to rem- I was trying to imagine when I first saw Amanda what how I might have been feeling if I were an eight year old kid, and my mother had said, "Okay, we're going to drive to a courthouse a couple hours away, and we're going to be part of this thing called a lawsuit." and I could only think that I would have no idea what this was all about, except what my mother told me. And Amanda was kind of that way. She was very quiet. She didn't say very much. She said hello to me when her mother prompted her to say hello to me. But she was um, she was kind of a kid who sat there and looked around, and you had the sense she was taking it all in. She had, she had, she had the presence, the way she looked, the way she listened that she was one day gonna remember all this and that it was important and she was part of history. And that's really what happened. She became the, um, the, the case was named the Brigham case because her last name, Brigham, was simply the highest uh, letter in the alphabet of all the plaintiffs. Courts assign names to cases based on um, the last name of the uh, moving party, the person filing suit. And if there are a lot of plaintiffs, the, the court, the court clerks will simply take the one, the name that appears first in the alphabet. And Brigham was ahead of all the other names, so Amanda Brigham became the became the person who whose name is attached to the case. And I always thought it was terrific that a case about education bore the bore the name of an eight-year-old. And I I love that when the Brigham case was finally decided and the legislature was trying to figure out how it was going to meet the constitutional imperative the court had, had, had put on them, people started talking about the legal case as Brigham says this and Brigham doesn't allow that. And I thought every time I heard that, I thought this is so great that, that, that an eight year old kid is directing what's supposed to be happening. And that's how I felt all the time.
1: So remind us what was the problem and how did the Brigham case solve it?
0: The problem that the Brigham case addressed and sought a legal remedy for was the fact that in some towns, you could raise money very easily to pay for uh, schools for your kids. And in other towns, it was very, very difficult to raise the same amount of money that the first town that had a lot of property Uh, that paid a lot of taxes had, but your town, because it was rural, it wasn't a vacation center, it wasn't a retail center, had a lot of farms, had a lot of land and land use, um, you didn't have a property tax base that made it easy for your town to raise money without imposing a very high school property tax. So what was happening before Brigham was Town t- schools were financed on a local level. I mean, truly the town level. And the wealth of a town really depended, uh, re- really dictated how much more or less a town would be spending on education. If it was easier for you to spend money because you, because you had a broad property tax base, you tended to spend more per kid. And the other, the converse of that was true as well. The disparity had gotten so bad by the 1990s because of the, the formula that was then in place called the foundation formula, that there was talk about bringing a lawsuit as many other states had experienced There were lawsuits brought in other states in education finance. There was talk about doing this in Vermont. And it was finally a, a guy up in the Northeast Kingdom uh, um, who went to... Bob Gensberg, uh, a, a neighbor of his who was an attorney, and Ernie Broadwater, that was his name. And Ernie Broadwater uh, said, Bob, you know, this isn't fair. We can't, we can't give our kids the education they can. And people that live in much wealthier towns can do this really easily. Can't we do something about this in the courts? And Bob said, I'll think about it. He came back to Broadwater a few months later and said, I think we can do something about this. And he um, put together a legal team. He got support from the American Civil Liberties Union of Vermont, which uh, helped to help to finance the case by providing the resources uh, that, that they sometimes needed. And uh, the case was off and running in
1: 1995. And this set a national precedent. I, I know about this story because I uh, reported on it at the time, and I remember going around to to understand what, you know what's the problem here uh, my local school in waterbury seemed in pretty decent shape and and uh, the problem was very clear to me just driving to schools within a 45 minute radius of where i lived i remember going to randolph and it was literally like a third world schoolhouse there were um, Guidance counselors were meeting children in the boys' bathroom because of a lack of room. Classes were meeting in the halls. I was floored that this was, an, and Randolph is, you know, not a, a particularly rural outpost, it's right there on, on the interstate. And uh, a similar story greeted me when I went to Morrisville, um, where a very aging and decrepit people's academy um, was. Struggling to trans, you know, to teach 21st century classes, um, and so this was driven home to me. And, it, and I was there a year after Act 60, the Brigham decision, which came from the Brigham decision, had enabled uh, these schools to begin rebuilding. Um, but it was visually striking to see the problems that you're describing here.
0: So let me let me give you the example that's in the Supreme Court decision. Um, the court, the, the, let me back up just a second. The Brigham, the Brigham case was really about money. It was tangentially about what a school looks like in the end. But the real thing that the case was trying to do was to try to make sure that every town had the same draw on a pool of money as any other town. And the only thing that determined how much you were going to spend per kid was how much your town decided at town meeting to do, how much your townspeople decided. You weren't deciding you could only spend $8,000 per kid rather than $15,000 because you didn't have a a big tax base. Instead, the suit was trying to say, everybody should have the same ability to tap the same amount of money. In the Supreme Court case, there was an example that the court cited in this decision to the two towns of Stannard and Shelburne. Shelburne is now known as Killington, but, Uh, Killington is obviously a fairly wealthy town. It's one of the ski towns. Standard, on the other hand, up in the Northeast Kingdom is a very poor town. Those two towns had almost identical spending per pupil. Yet in Standard, standard, the property taxes on a house valued at $85,000 were $2,040. In Sherburn, taxes on a house of equal value were $247. So there was a difference of 10 times in the tax burden on taxpayers to finance their schools, which led to unequal opportunities for kids because Standard clearly did not have the wherewithal to spend nearly as much money as Sherburne did. And the case said that such unequal access and access to funding had to be eliminated. And that's what Act 60 did. It created a single property tax base for the entire state, and then there was a pool of money uh, that towns drew from based on how much they decided at town meeting to uh, spend per kid. And the more you spent per kid, the higher your taxes would go. It wasn't free money, but everybody was being taxed on an equal basis, and the money was being distributed to towns on an equal basis.
1: So uh, I want to move on to look at another decision, a landmark decision with national implications, which was the Baker case. This is the case that brought about, uh, well, almost brought about marriage equality. True equality didn't happen for another uh, nine or so years. Um, I guess the, the, so, you know, people will recall that the Baker case brought about civil unions in Vermont. Um, the the larger question that I have, and I think a lot of people have is how did Vermont end up being the first state to give legal sanction to gay marriage? What was it about Vermont that made this the place to do that?
0: Well, that's a great question. I don't think there's a really, uh, really right or wrong answer. What was happening around the country was gay rights advocates were becoming much more outspoken. They really did after the Stonewall riots in the, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, they really became much more vocal as, as they, as they should, should, should have been able to do and were very s- successful in becoming strong advocates. They were being frustrated though, they weren't getting very, very far along the idea of being treated equally e- even in marriage. Um, and people realized that if there was going to be a change, probably wasn't going to be on a political level. It was going to be on a legislative level. So from the very beginning, well, I wouldn't say the very beginning, but very, very soon after there had been a lot of effort to change marriage laws on a legislative basis and they had failed, um, they, they turned to the courts. And I think they turned to the Vermont courts because there were a couple of people who were working on looking at bringing a legal case around uh, gay lesbian couples rights to uh, marriage. And that was the case that uh, Beth Robinson among other people were working on at the time in the early nineties. And they probably looked at the Brigham decision and realized you know, the common benefits clause which is what the Brigham decision was decided on which says that once government is gonna give a benefit, it has to be given to everybody on an equal basis, an equitable basis. They said, well, heck, if that applies to school funding, that should apply to a benefit such as marriage because the state is providing the benefit. There is a benefit to marriage, the state's providing it. It should be provided to everybody on an equal basis. You should not be discriminating against people on the basis of their gender. gender identity.
1: Um, is this common benefits clause unique to Vermont?
0: It is now. It wasn't when Vermont first wrote it into its constitution in 1777 because Vermont copied, and I kid you not, we copied verbatim from the Pennsylvania constitution the, what, what is now our common benefits clause. Uh, there, there have been a couple of really minor changes. Well, minor in terms of the the, the impact, but um, one of the changes, our 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 common benefits clause was corrected to be gender neutral about 20 years ago. But it's otherwise, it's the same language that that Pennsylvania wrote in its constitution in 1777. It was considered the most radical constitution of the time. Vermont copied. Almost the entire Pennsylvania Constitution verbatim because it was quickly trying, it was trying very quickly to become a state, the 14th state. And the first thing they had to do was to get a constitution. And somebody in Philadelphia, a doctor by the name of Thomas Young, who was, who had become active in in Pennsylvania politics, said, look, you guys should just copy the Pennsylvania Constitution. It's good language. A lot of people are looking at it. So Vermont said, sure, we'll do it. Over time, what happened was the common benefits clause that existed in the Pennsylvania constitution was greatly modified. The language is very different from what, from what it was in the beginning. And other states that also copied the Pennsylvania language, they changed it as well. So as far as I, as far as I know, Vermont is the only state that still has this, this really kind of revolutionary enthusiasm, enthusiastic language that was written when the American Revolution had just started, 1777. We have the same language. Mm-hmm. And that's why, that's why the equity, the fight for equity based on the common benefits clause in Vermont is interesting historically, but it also packs a lot of wallop because the way the Vermont Supreme Court has interpreted it, it means if the government provides a benefit, it has to be provided on an equal basis, full stop. And that's how Vermont became the first state to have a decision that uh, said that gay couples were entitled to the benefits of marriage. Again, benefits, that's what the common benefits clause does. It guarantees benefits on an equal basis. Mm. The Supreme Court said, it's not up to us how the legislature decides how those benefits are to be provided, but people who are gay or lesbian, if they want to marry, must have the same benefits when they do marry uh, that straight people get. And as we all know that the Baker decision came down in the last days of 1999, the, um, the civil unions law, which was civil unions, was marriage benefits without being called marriage was passed in 2000. It took another nine years until the legislature decided that really civil unions should be changed to, to, to marriage because it really is, Uh, a separate but equal kind of situation we're in here. So we're going to change it to marriage. And you're, you're right. It took nine years for that to happen.
1: If You're just joining us. We're talking with Alan Gilbert. He was the longtime executive director of the American civil liberties union of Vermont. His new book is equal is equal and fair is fair. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your own route to this. People might assume from hearing, uh, how expertly you talk about legal issues, that you're a lawyer, but you're not. Um, no. Explain how you came no, to be head of a, a legal organization, a civil rights organization.
0: Well, I came to be head of it because at the time the ACLU was, uh, was looking for a new executive director. The, the, the previous person, Leslie Williams had retired. And more than anything else, this was in 2003, they wanted somebody who could explain what their work was about. And to many people who were doing the hiring at the time, that meant particularly not hiring an attorney. They actually wanted somebody who could explain things to ordinary people with ordinary language. I have a journalism background. I have a writing background, and much of my life before that point had been in taking complicated subjects and having to write about them and explain it, explain details to the average person. The other connection for me was uh, my town was a plaintiff in the Brigham decision. We were along with Amanda Brigham and a whole host of other people. I was the chair of the Worcester School Board at the time. Bob Gensburg had called me up uh, before the lawsuit was filed, and he said, look, we're looking at the profiles, the numbers, your town is a to Charles for what the problem with the with the foundation formula is. Would you like to be a plaintiff in this lawsuit? And I said I'll have to ask my board, but I think yes. And it took my it took our board about two minutes to decide that we should do this. But Worcester became one of the town plaintiffs as opposed to the individual plaintiffs or taxpayer plaintiffs who also were on the list of plaintiffs. I became active in working with the ACLU people and with Gensburg and the attorneys in explaining why we were filing suit. And I was actually being prepped to be a witness in the trial to do sort of what you had talked about, David, talking about what, it, what, what differences are there between schools that have um, a, a, a broad pool of money to spend on kids and schools that don't. But there, there actually was never a trial in the case. The case was argued on the merits of the arguments made by the lawyers. But I got pretty deeply involved in what they were trying to do. Once the law was passed, I became an advocate for pushing for the implementation of Act 60 in a fair way and effective way. There was a lot of pushback, if you remember, from a number of towns. And I just got more and more active in this. And when it came time for the ACLU to find a new executive director, they didn't want a lawyer, they wanted somebody who could explain stuff to people who normally would only have lawyers talking at them. And um, they, they gave me the job.
1: You know, a lot of people think of Vermont as, uh, well, these things happen because it's a very liberal state. And I often point out to people, um, th- that's not how I would describe Vermont, you know, we've alternated between Democratic and Republican governors. But I would say that we are very independent minded. And I'm wondering what your perspective on, you know, even the current moment. So uh, we have a Republican governor, but he's gone in a very different direction in dealing with the COVID pandemic than other Republican governors, uh, which has had, you know, a very positive result to the degree anything is positive in COVID, but Vermont's doing uh, quite a bit better than many other places. What's your take on what sets Vermont apart in the country? How do you explain this place?
0: Well, that that's actually a question I thought a lot about when I started writing this book because I wondered the same thing. Why why does Vermont seem exceptional? And I've come to the conclusion that it's not necessarily that Vermont's except, exceptional. You know, there's nothing in the water that we're drinking that makes us mighty men and women. For me, looking at the question of equity in the and the, the three areas that I look at. Uh, you realize that equity is not a partisan ideology in Vermont. It's really it's, it's, it's a foundational value. It's, it's embedded literally in our Constitution through this thing called the Common Benefits Clause. I think what is exceptional is the fact that we have that language, again, left over from the glow of the American Revolution in 1777 we're still living with that same language and we kind of take we kind of we kind of take that language seriously i think there's a sense of equity in this state even when we can't reach it which is our problem with health care even though we know we should be doing better in health care i think vermont has a sense that we're all in this together we have to look out for each other and it's to my mind, a lot of it does have to do with, with just the constitutional, the legal framework, and then how we as people take the responsibility the Constitution gives us. What do we do with it? So it's not that people are exceptional. It's that the state itself, the foundation is exceptional. And then people take that exceptional exceptionalism and they do exceptional things. And I think both the Brigham case and also the Uh, gay marriage case, were two very exceptional moments in this state's history uh, that made the state seem exceptional. And it is, but there's a reason for it. I'm hoping that someday the same exceptionalism will mean that we have a publicly financed universal access to health care program in the state. That's been my third chapter in the book is about why have we not been able to succeed in that one? And I hope, I've always wanted to see before I died, that there would be a broad health system in the state. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I think eventually Vermont's going to come around to that somehow. I'm not sure how, but I think it will. It's just in the state's blood to do the right thing. We haven't figured out a way to do that yet.
1: Okay. Well, Alan Gilbert, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation.
0: Thanks for having me. It's great. Alan
1: Gilbert is the former director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Vermont. His newest book is called Equal is Equal, Fair is Fair, Vermont's Quest for Equity and Education Funding, Same-Sex Marriage, and Health Care. And, full disclosure, I am a board member of the ACLU of Vermont. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.